The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Josh Barrow, a senior editor at Business Insider, as well as a contributor to MSNBC and the host of KCRW's Left, Right, and Center podcast. I'd wanted to have Josh on the show for a while now to talk about all the breaking news going on in the world and also just about political commentary and uh, high-minded things like the state of our nation. So Josh Barrow joins me now from New York City. Josh, thank you for being here. Sure thing, Isaac. The first question I wanted to ask you, because you've been a political commentator for a little bit and you uh, you tweet a lot, you write a lot, you're on TV a lot, etc. Are, are you enjoying this moment? Um, by this moment, I mean the last 14, 15 months of being a political commentator? No, I'm not. Um, I mean, partly be- so th- my path to to becoming a, a writer and political commentator, I worked in in public policy think tanks for a few years before I did that. Um, and, you know, I, I wrote specifically on state and local government finance, some on, you know, federal issues related to. And so the reason I got into writing about politics was to be able to write about some of those issues where I felt like I was able to explain things more clearly than people might otherwise hear them explained, help them understand relatively complicated areas of policy and what's a good idea or a bad idea. And our politics is just not very much about policy right now. There's been some major policy. Um, the tax cut bill was obviously an, an important policy change in a lot of ways. Uh, the the news that we've had on the tariffs over the last week or so, if the president actually goes through with this policy, will have important economic effects. But, you know, there's been a lot of time spent on, you know, frankly, kind of bullshit um, or sometimes on things that are, you know, important uh, cultural disputes, important questions about who we are as as a nation and that sort of thing, where even if they are important, I just feel like I don't have particular expertise to add to that. The The conversation often is not very edifying, and I don't feel like I can necessarily make it more edifying. So it has not been my favorite 15 months uh, to be engaging in the political conversation. Well, right. I mean, I think we would both agree that there's a lot of time spent on bullshit, but there, there's this weird thing going on now, I think, where it's sort of, you know, when we were both coming up, I imagine we're about the same age. I'm 35. How old are you? I'm 33. Okay. You know, there was a sense of like, oh, too much of the news is kind of mindless nonsense. And what's really important is focusing on policy, as you were as you were saying. But but mm-hmm. now it seems like we're in this weird place where focusing too much on policy almost seems unimportant or it, not frivolous because the policies themselves aren't frivolous, but sort mm-hmm. of a misleading way of, you know... Um, understanding what's going on. I mean, I sort of go crazy when people debate the ins and outs of what Trump said about DACA policy on during some given press conference and what's a good idea or a bad idea. It just sort of seems irrelevant to understanding how Washington over these last 14 months is, is actually working. Yeah, I mean, that's varied from issue to issue. Um, And a lot of these policy discussions, I've sort of had to try to figure out when's the right time to engage with some of the details, some of the technical parts. Now, you had things like the tax bill where the details really did matter um, because they were actually going to do something. Um, But it wasn't true that the details mattered initially. You know, every so often the president would say, oh, the White House is going to come out with a tax plan. And it was clear that his staff had no idea that it was his intention to make a tax plan announcement. And they'd come up with some one pager or three pager that had no real new information on it. He'd float an idea Um, there. You know, there was talk that, you know, maybe maybe he'll raise taxes at the at the top of the income spectrum. Steve Bannon was actually pushing for that idea within the White House. But I don't think that ever really got serious consideration. But then you did get to a point in the fall 
where they really were crafting legislation, where the details really were likely to end up being law and, and mattering for the economy and for individual taxpayers' lives. Um, so it's not always stupid to engage with the details. And I think, you know, we may see a, a point coming up on on trade where, where the details matter. But there have been other issues like the infrastructure where the president just says stuff and it has no particular relationship to what the government might actually do. So I agree with you there that spending a lot of time trying to understand the merits of the details and, you know, the the, the White House has floated occasionally, for example, this fairly complex idea um, about public-private partnerships in, in infrastructure and trying to, to put out more more private bond financing on, on certain things. But then the other thing is these, you know, these big overarching cultural conversations are not all bullshit. Um, a lot of them are about important questions of American values. And if that's what elections are about, that's an important phenomenon to engage with. It's just a very different thing from, you know, from policymaking. Right. And that's the weird thing about the last election. And I assume the next election is that at one mm-hmm. level, it seems so frivolous or seems so frivolous and stupid in so many ways. And at another level, it, it did feel like the election was about as big cultural issues as we have, you know, whatever <clears throat> race and gender and class and uh, divides between education levels in this country. It, it, it did feel it did feel sort of momentous in that way that this was not um I don't know what the alternative election would be, 2000 or something, where uh, even if it turned out, 2000 turned out to be a momentous election, but the election campaign did not feel like we were debating or that it was a stand-in for really large issues about the future of the country. Yeah. I wouldn't assume that the next election will also be like that in the way that the most recent one was. I mean, I think these uh, some of these special elections that you're seeing... Um, I mean, some of them are about, you know, refighting fights over over big cultural issues. But you're seeing, you know, in a lot of these state legislative uh, seats that have been flipping parties, it's about very concrete concerns about things like education spending in the states. Um, I think that there's there's also a sense that voters seek balance in the government, that uh, that now that you have Donald Trump in the presidency, you have some voters who they feel like that avoided what they were afraid of from Democrats, what Hillary Clinton might do, but they, they want the check on him. Um, so I think the temperature to some extent is actually turned down, even though the, the engagement level in these elections is, is very high, especially for Democrats. Um, it doesn't feel like they have quite the same cultural stakes that the presidential election did. Yeah, no, I agree. I meant 2020, which does feel like, again, it'll be fun. Yeah, of, but that'll yeah that'll depend on who the Democratic nominee is. I mean, in many ways, Hillary Clinton was the perfect foil for yes. Donald Trump, the, the Democratic candidate who was most vulnerable to being painted as the candidate of these coastal elites um, with closer ties to, to financial and business elites than you would typically see with a Democratic candidate, um, part of this political family that had been prominent for, for decades and sort of, you know, associated with this global centrist technocratic movement. And so I think that depending on who the Democrats nominate the next time, I mean, you would think Democrats could have gotten a clear shot at Donald Trump as, you know, someone who was a, a crony of wealthy people, um, you know, the out, out of touch with with ordinary people, at least in an economic way, um, too, too likely to be too close to Wall Street and things that I think have been borne out in his actual administration. But Hillary Clinton was sort of the worst possible position Democratic candidate to do that. If you had a different nominee, you could have a campaign that looked a lot more like the 2012 campaign. Um, where Democrats had quite a bit of success at attacking Mitt Romney for his ties to the financial and business elites. You think that's possible with Trump? I mean, it just feels like he's become such a stand in. I mean, uh, the the questions sort of about, you know, how he maintains his 38 percent approval for the country or whatever it is. I mean, it just it feels to me like the main reason is that because he's a stand in for all these other giant cultural things for his voters and for the people who oppose him. And since he dominates the room or the campaign that 
any campaign about him is sort of by definition almost going to be about these large issues. But I agree with you. If the Democrats nominated Joe Biden or Tim Kaine or something, it, it would definitely lower the temperature a little bit. Well, I, th- I think certainly Donald Trump can run on cultural issues and get 38 percent of the vote again. Um, the, the way he won in 2016 was that he won overwhelmingly among people who had a negative view of both him and of Hillary Clinton. Um, so the, the set of people who sort of buy into the Donald Trump culture war agenda, you know, make America great again hat type people. It's a, it's a large fraction of the country, but it's not enough to win an election. You also need the some of those, you know, the, the reluctant Trump voters are a core part of his coalition to win again. And so I think, you know, if if they were faced with a, 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 a choice that was more palatable from a populist perspective than Hillary Clinton, I think a lot of those people could fall away, just as a lot of them had voted for Obama four years prior. I want to ask just about your background a little bit, which is that you were a Republican for a long time until you were how old? I mean, technically, I didn't leave the Republican Party until October of 2016, but I had certainly fallen quite far away from it before I did that. I, I don't I don't believe in political independence. I think that political parties are a key vehicle for policymaking um, and that if you choose not to affiliate with one, you're basically giving up influence. So I didn't want to leave the Republican Party until I was ready to become a Democrat. So I, I, I'm now a Democrat. I've never been an independent. Well, let me ask you this quickly then. I mean, because you mentioned the sort of lack of seriousness about Trump and, and policy um, a few minutes mm-hmm. ago. You did. A, you wrote a lot of critiques and talked a lot about the way in which you thought the Republican Party had sort of siloed itself off in this certain place and was becoming less mm-hmm. serious about policy. I mean, do you see Trump as sort of the logical culmination of that or do you you think he's su- sort of sui generis and the things you were talking about, about what had gone wrong with the party and its inability to change is uh, is something different? I think his policy agenda is a logical extension of the sort of ideological bankruptcy of of the Republican Party. And it's not Donald Trump's fault that there was no plan to replace Obamacare. That was the fault of congressional leaders um, who had spent years railing against the law without developing a theory of what they would do instead. And, And the reason they couldn't come up with that theory is that they wanted to attack Obamacare in the most effective ways possible, which generally meant attacking it from the left. Saying that it wasn't generous enough because the because the deductibles were too high and the premiums were too high, if you if that was your official critique of it, and also that it had cut Medicare too much, um, if you wanted to come into office and fix that, you would have to spend more money. But they also wanted to spend less money, so they'd made a set of promises that were impossible to fulfill all at once, and there was no way to write legislation to uh, to to deal with that. So that's that's not a problem Donald Trump created. I think that's a, a logical extension of where the party had gotten on policy now, as you know, certain other aspects of of his. Uh, persona and his volatility, I don't think you would have seen under a, a Rubio administration or a Cruz administration. But I, I, I think the policy in that regard has looked about the way you would have expected. Now, the the question would be, would, it, would another Republican administration be more ideologically coherent in that it would try to cut spending on entitlements at the same time that it cut taxes instead of running these enormous budget deficits? And I think that's an open question. I think, you know, the the Donald Trump understood the severe unpopularity of entitlement cuts, which is why he never even made a a rhetorical commitment to them. I think it would have been hard for another Republican president to have gone through with them because it would have been such political suicide to try to do a round of Medicare or Social Security cuts. So I think on on policy, with the exception of of what he may be about to do on trade, um, I think it's sort of in line with the set of not very interesting ideas the party's had over the last few years. You mentioned that you think he has these political instincts about not cutting entitlements, say, which actually I, I think both of us would agree are kind of more um, in tune with the average voter than kind of, let's say, Paul Ryan's policy instincts. Um, but you kind of attribute that to him sort of fundamentally getting it. I mean, where do you 
Where do you kind of stand on him, his intelligence or political intelligence after observing him for a year and a half? Because this is something, or two and a half years, this is something I go back and forth on. I think he understands certain things about the way a lot of people feel about the government. But I think that his gut level instincts also lead him astray in certain ways. I think we've seen that on the gun issue where, you know, there's a few things that, that Trump repeats as, you know, themes over and over again on any issue. There's all this stuff about us versus them. Everything is a is is a zero sum exchange. We win or and they lose or the other way around. It's how he views trade and immigration. It's part of why trade is one of the few issues that he's had a consistent ideological position on over the last 30 years. Another thing is he's obsessed with strength. And this idea that you that you have to be strong, you have to respond to force with force. And the thing he keeps saying about about mass shootings and school shootings in particular is the, that we can't be on defense. You need to be on offense. And that's why you have to arm the teachers. Um, so I think that's where it's led him astray. But I think in other areas, I think I think he has understood things that, you know, that people have a sense that things used to be better in the past in certain ways. They have a nostalgia um, about the the American economy. There's an idea, I think partly an invented idea, that basically middle class and industrial jobs used to work a lot better than they do right now. Um, so I think that has that has connected with people, even if the, the tariff policy is not necessarily connecting. Um, and I think on immigration, I think he's understood um, that the elite consensus on immigration got way out ahead of where the, the country is. And that there was a lot of demand for, you know, for there's a significant amount of demand for, for fairly extreme rhetoric on immigration. Um, but there's also a lot of demand for immigration policy that is to the right of where the Democratic Party got itself, having moved far to the left on the issue over the last eight years. So I think it, it's been a mixed bag. But the man got himself elected president um, in even though he really shouldn't have. So that's fairly impressive. Stay tuned for more from Josh Barrow right after a break. I was thinking about this over the last couple of days because we've had a lot of breaks in the Russia scandal. And um, I think one of the interesting things about the Russia story is I'll see if I phrase this correctly, but essentially we kind of don't know. We don't know what the truth is. And we all have kind of our hunch about where it's going or not going. And and so much of it, I think, is sort of about how we read him to some extent as a person and how we understand, um, I mean, just sort of take him in Russia or him in Putin and and just sort of observe it. And it's so bizarre. And it's this weird thing because we have this story that may end up being, you know, the biggest story of the last God knows how many years. And we're all kind of interpreting it through news leaks, yes, but also just sort of through how we view him and why does he talk this way about Putin and why does he do this and is he smart enough to conspire? And and it's weird to kind of have this story that's developing and we're all kind of analyzing it through our psychological reading of him. Or maybe we're not and that's mm-hmm. just me, but I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, so Donald Trump's positive view on Russia goes way back. It's even in The Art of the Deal. He talks about that he's hoping to develop a a Trump Tower in Moscow in partnership with the Soviet government. Um, so, you know, even if the, the Russians have been taking the long view, I don't think that they've been cultivating him as a mature Manchurian candidate for 30 years. So You're I think- so naive, Josh. <laughs> I think a lot of this is dispositional and we see it in the way that he deals with other authoritarian leaders him you know praising Xi Jinping for finding a way to keep the presidency of China for life I think that he admires that strength um I think he looks at you know someone like uh, Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines uh you know overseeing these extrajudicial killings of alleged you know drug dealers and drug users and and thinks that's you know that that's a cool display of strength which is a you know a, a, not a good thing for the president to think um but I don't think it's on cuz he's on the take from the Philippines I think that's his that that's his worldview now that doesn't exclude the possibility that he was also 
colluding with Russia or that there's some sort of shady financial dealing behind that. And in fact, it could be part of, you know, how that link up happened, that the fact that he had a positive disposition toward Russia is what led to an approach from Russians and the development of of an inappropriate relationship. So I don't think it has to be an either or question. No, I I, I agree with that. And obviously, the Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you talked about earlier about his sort of innate love of strength and policymaking, uh, which is obviously connected to a liking of um, strength and authoritarian leaders. I guess I would not be surprised if I wake up tomorrow morning and for whatever stupid reason or not stupid reason, he's ripping Duterte or Xi. I would be shocked if I woke up and he ripped Putin in a tweet tomorrow. That would absolutely shock me. Yeah. Although the, the remarkable thing is, is Xi is one of the leaders who really he he won a uh, foreign policy fight with Trump right at the beginning. You remember during the transition, Trump took that phone call with the president of Taiwan, um, which was seen as a you know a significant break with uh, the, with U.S. China relations over decades. And Trump had made noise that maybe he wouldn't honor the one China policy, and she just gave him the silent treatment. The Chinese said we're not going to have any bilateral conversations until there's a statement from the president uh, affirming the one China policy. And and the president swung around much in the way that Marriott Hotels has. You know, they fired that social media employee who liked the tweet praising Marriott for listing Tibet as a country on on their website. You know, the Chinese uh, exert strong pressure on corporations that do business there to, to hew to this part of Chinese policy. And they exerted strong pressure in a similar way on the Trump administration. And he folded. And that's the sort of thing that I think Trump would normally find personally embarrassing. It was not a show of strength the way that he he folded to Xi there. But Xi has has found a way uh, to manipulate the president that I think a lot of other world leaders would would envy. You mentioned- As, as for Putin, I think yeah. part of, I you know, the- uh, the pre- the president the the White House at least has been very critical about Ru- over Russia over certain actions in Syria over the last few months. Um, so it's it's not clear that the the White House has you know part part of the 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 issue with the Russia story is what have the Russians really gotten um, in exchange for you know for the for their help from Donald Trump substantively on policy the administration they've maybe they've slow walked the new sanctions against Russia but they haven't rolled back the old ones uh, we continue to to support the 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 pro-Western regime in, in Ukraine, including in material ways with with weapons. Um, now, I think partly that's because the, the president's hands are tied politically because there's so much scrutiny around Russia. But the other thing is there's a lot of people in the world who thought they were going to get something out of Donald Trump who didn't. So one weird aspect thinking about any potential corruption around the Trump campaign is that the marks are not necessarily just the public. Um, you could imagine people who thought that they had bought off Donald Trump and then Trump doesn't actually deliver what he th- what they thought he was going to deliver to them. Do you feel that way about the GOP though? Well, we'll see what he does on these tariffs. I think for for the most part, you know, the, what Republicans really wanted, or, or at least you know, in Congress, they really wanted the tax bill. Um, and Trump not only signed it, he got usefully out of the way of the policymaking process there. Um, and allowed them to to craft a bill that satisfied the various constituencies within the party and that was able to get through Congress. Um, so they've gotten that. Um, his positions on immigration are positions that that's an issue that divides the the Republican uh, coalition. Um, there are certain business oriented interests that don't like what he's doing on that, but the what he's doing there is pleasing a lot of Republicans, not just at the grassroots level, but also people in, in professionally in the coalition in Washington in ways that a normal Republican president probably would not have pleased them. So I think they have got a lot of what they wanted out of him. And then the 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 difficult questions with Trump are sort of long-term damage to institutions. Um, and unfortunately, I'm just not sure how much that many people care about that. 
you mentioned centrist technocracy earlier in relationship to the Clintons. And uh, mm-hmm. if, if, if I've ever read anyone who I would consider kind of a centrist technocrat, it would be you, which I would imagine mm-hmm. you would view as somewhat of a badge of honor to be referred to as that uh, or not. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think, you know, centrist te- technocracy has not had a great decade. Well, that's where, that's um, where I was going with this question. Yeah. But, <laughs> but no, no, I mean, yeah, go on. So I think. And and we're still reckoning with this. I think a lot of the big mistakes were in monetary policy, especially in Europe. I think the eurozone has, which is was absolutely a, a technic, seen as a technocratic project, has been a disaster, especially for Southern Europe, and it's been fueling a lot of these populist movements. Um, and then the other problem has been immigration, which I view as actually a substantive problem in Europe. In the U.S., I, I don't view it as a substantive problem, even though there's obviously political disagreement over the issue of immigration. Um, but I think there's there's been a lot of I, I wrote a piece about this back about a month after Trump got elected about no choice politics, where basically you have these situations where the the political establishment has contrived a situation where there is only one choice available to the public. So you had this in, in the eurozone where because everybody's tied together on this one currency and there's no good way for countries to default or to inflate or to do things that they might do in a severe economic crisis, um, basically uh, the, you have all this Greek debt out there and you can't let Greece default because all these banks all over Europe hold the debt and you'll have a huge banking crisis if Greece defaults. So Northern Europe has no option but to bail out Greece. Um, but in order to receive that bailout, the, the Northern Europeans demand various austerity measures from the Greeks. Um, and so Greece has no option but to make these painful tro- changes on taxes and spending. And everyone's angry. Nobody's happy in Greece. Nobody's happy in Germany either. Um, and this was because centrist technocrats put them in a straitjacket. And not all of them. I mean, Paul Krugman was shouting to anyone who would listen at the time that the euro was a terrible idea because exactly this sort of thing might happen. Um, so you saw that. And then on immigration, I think both in the US and in Europe, it's based, it's been a contrived no choice thing where in the US you had lax enforcement around immigration for a very long time that created this very large population of unauthorized immigrants. And then you get all these individual situations. They have children who are U.S. citizens. And so if you deport the parents, then you're splitting up families. Um, and you have all these people who were brought in as, as children. And so you can't deport them because what did they they do? They didn't choose that. But then you can't deport their parents either because then you're splitting up families again. And so basically you created the situation where the, it, it was unreasonable to send all these people back. And so you had no choice but to admit them to the United States and have some some sort of amnesty. And the logic of that makes a certain amount of sense, except whose fault is it that there was no choice? It's the people who were running the government in the 1990s who chose not to enforce immigration policy in the first place so that you didn't have all these individual family situations created. And I think there is reasonably suspicion that this was done on purpose um, because people wanted a more lax immigration policy that they couldn't get passed through Congress. And there's reasonable suspicion that it will happen again um, if you do some sort of comprehensive immigration reform. They'll have a new immigration policy and then there will continue to be illegal immigration. And then we will come back and have to do this again in 25 years because you will have a lot of sympathetic cases for people where there's, there's no reasonable choice other than to bend the rules for them again and, and allow them to, to immigrate as well. And I think you've seen that on, on a scale in, in Europe also, um, where because of the rules that bind the entire EU, you've had a number of policy areas, including immigration, where things have been forced on people in ways that feel anti-democratic. Um, and, and people have freaked out about this and they, they have punished the establishment. And, and basically, if, if, if responsible political parties won't offer 
the public choices on some of these issues, then they will vote for irresponsible political parties. So I, th- I think it's been a disaster largely of the making um, of the technocrats. OK, but does that is that a critique of the technocrats themselves or do you think that they're and again, I'm speaking in very broad categories here, but take immigration mm-hmm. and um, sort of uh, immigration in Europe or the United States, which is the issue you brought up. Is there something inherent in centrist technocracy that you're likely to have these kinds of problems? For example, in the case of immigration, I guess you could say that the reason that no one wanted to do or enforce these things was because the interests involved didn't want them to. And so I guess what I'm wondering is, does this sort of change your larger um, analysis of whether centrist technocracy can work rather than just think, oh, Mm -hmm. the various bureaucrats made stupid choices or choices that were politically uh, unfortunate. Well, so so a couple of thoughts on that. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think part of, you know, why why did you not have robust immigration enforcement? It's partly because interest groups on both sides didn't really want it. Businesses wanted to have cheap labor available to them, both legally and then also illegally. Part of what the advantage of, of illegal immigration is that they don't have to pay people minimum wage. They don't have to follow labor laws. And then on the left, you had various reasons for wanting higher levels of immigration. You know, often the people who might immigrate are are relatives and associates of people who are already here. It's perfectly reasonable that they want to that they want those people to be able to immigrate. Um, There's also political effects. Democrats, you know, benefit from from demographic change in in the country. So basically, you had two sides of the issue that that were not motivated to enforce, and and those. Interest group voices, especially the business community, are, are overrepresented in in Washington. Um, in terms of whether that has to be an inherent flaw of tech, well, and the the other problem with this is the tendency of technocrats to look at these issues as pure, purely technocratic issues of optimization. Basically, you know, what's the right immigration policy, and they think about well, what leads to the highest GDP or the highest GDP per capita in the U.S. And it it doesn't acknowledge the cultural questions where, you know, people say things like, I feel like I'm losing my country. Um, And you can just say, well, that's racist, which fine, but those people vote. Um, And if you don't allow those questions to even be considered as part of the political process, then people are going to look for options outside the standard political establishment, whether that means Donald Trump or whether that means outsider populist parties in Europe. Um, As for whether, you know, a a centrist technocratic government is possible that works well, I think we've seen some countries that have avoided these problems. Canada and Australia um, are are good examples. But I mean, you know, Canada um, has, I think, managed their immigration system very well and they have a large number of immigrants. um, But they, you know, they they have Republicans like to talk about a a merit based system. The president likes to talk about this. Now, one one of the things that, that makes you meritorious under that system is having family and associates in the country. So that kind of looks like the uh, the family-based immigration that we have in the U.S. that they're talking about wanting to get rid of. But in, in any case, it is an immigration policy based around choosing who is going to come to Canada. And I think they've had more success with so, with social immigration than us. So, But let me ask you then, I mean, you said earlier that you thought that immigration was a substantive problem in Europe and it's not in the United States. So if it's not a substantive problem in the United States, but people are still feeling this way, and you're saying you don't want to just write these people off and say, oh, they're all racist, blah, blah, blah. You know, mm-hmm. um, if the issue hasn't been addressed, then it will be addressed by populist or xenophobic forces. But if mm-hmm. it's not a substantive issue, then why are people so upset about this rather than? Well, so, so what, what I should have said there is that I think I think there are significant problems associated with immigration in Europe that aren't present in the U.S. I think, right. I think Europe is having some problems with economic immigration and integration of immigrants. Um, and there's a there's a push pull issue there. I think, that, you know, it's it's there's more employment discrimination 
um, on, on the basis of, of ethnicity and, and origin in Europe than there is in the U.S. Some of that has to do with the tight labor market, the, the tight labor market restrictions that they have. It's hard to fire someone, then, then businesses are, are more likely to um, be, be restrictive about who they're going to hire, more likely to be driven by, by biases in, in that. Um, and some of the difference also is, is cultural. The U.S. just has an, a stronger immigration tradition that I think makes it easier to, to integrate immigrants. And then also in some parts of Europe, you have problems with Islamism associated with immigrant communities that we don't see in any significant scale in the U.S. OK, but so then why are people here so fu- furious about it? It's not that a majority of the country is furious about it. I think that if you know if you had a Democratic candidate who was better able um, to relate to the public on a set of other issues, they would have defeated Donald Trump, who was running on an anti-immigration platform. And you've seen increasing public support for immigration since his election. Um, So, you know, a substantial number of people, I I mean, I don't know, people are tribal. um, And people, you know, people have opinions about immigration that are just based on who they who they want to live around. Um, And I think that's going to be true anywhere, but it's not necessarily true of a majority of the country. So I think I think those concerns are are more easily surmountable in the U.S. is what I would say than they are in, in Europe, that I think Europe really needs a change to its immigration model to make immigration work there. Whereas here, I think you could just you know win elections with a set of people who think that the U.S. immigration model more or less works. Do you feel that like your idea of like the average American or the average sort of fellow member of your society has changed in the last couple of years? Hmm. Do you feel a different sort of connection to your fellow citizens or the way you think about them? I think on an intellectual level, I always knew that, you know, people were not that people don't know a lot about policy and people don't know a lot about what the government does. And, and honestly, maybe they shouldn't. I mean, if you're you know, the, the, there's not a lot of use for that knowledge day to day. There's this concept called rational ignorance that basically for, for most people, it's not worth spending a lot of time developing deep, knowledgeable opinions about what the government does because they don't run the government and they're not going to change what the government does. And so I guess I should have known that it was going to be possible to elect somebody who demonstrated manifest incompetence um, and who demonstrated a complete lack of knowledge or interest in what the government does. And yet he he won and nobody seemed to care. I, I think partly there were arguments that were popular with people in people in the media, people in New York, people um, who, you know, the who follow politics very closely um, about Donald Trump's unfitness that I were unpersuasive to a lot of people. And the the one that I think is most interesting is the idea that Donald Trump is not an especially good businessman. And, you know, he had all these business bankruptcies and mostly he seems to be good at doing businesses that involve licensing his name to somebody else who's actually in the day-to-day business of running a business. And I feel like if you said that to normal people, they sort of said, well, how could he be that bad a businessman? Look how big his plane is. Look how rich he is. Right. And on some level, that that actually it makes sense as as a you know first order way to evaluate whether Donald Trump is successful if he if he sucks so much at business why does he still have all this money and so i think with him it was you know the appearances were appearances were deceiving but it was hard to convince people of that because the appearances looked a certain way and also because i think there was a certain distrust of the people who were saying that it sounded snobby and on some level, it was snobby. I mean, I think the, the opinions that people have about Donald Trump um, that have to do with his complete lack of taste, they are snobby. Um, now, I think that the heuristics that we have used here in the media about Donald Trump and, and his lack of taste and what it means about him have, have proved correct. Um, but they were snobby and they sounded snobby. And I think people didn't pay attention for that reason. 
I think the one that's more shocking to me is less the the snobbiness, and I agree there was a certain snobbiness to some of that. Is just the mm-hmm. the kind of cruelty, which I still can't quite get over, has not registered more with people. Which is just he's just not nice. The weird thing about this, though, is I mean he's been like that forever, and yet in these contexts in business and entertainment, he was able to be like this and then turn on a dime and act like your friend again, and, and people would go along with it. Right. And there's something. It's like he's clearly having fun and it's like people halfway feel like they're in on the joke. Um, So obviously, I don't don't think I don't think Mexican immigrants feel this way. But I think, you know, if you're if you're some celebrity who was feuding with Donald Trump and he said horrible things about you, you didn't take it quite as seriously as you would with some other people. And, And, you know, frankly, I think some voters have felt that way. I mean, he did about as well with the Hispanic community as Mitt Romney had done, which is not great, but it's, you know, it's millions and millions of Hispanics went out there and voted for Donald Trump after all the things that he said. There's something about him that allows him to be nasty um, and for people to not react in the same way that they would react if a normal person was that nasty. Before the campaign especially, there was kind of a twinkle in his eye about some stuff. If you ever go back and listen to him on Howard Stern, there's some sense that he has an understanding of himself as a character and um, Mm -hmm. could find humor in that. I find that to be less and less the case now. I don't feel like he looks like he's having fun. I don't feel like... Occasionally, like with his tweet this week about the Oscars saying, I'm the only star. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, that was funny. And I thought, oh, okay, there's this Donald Trump who I kind of remember. It was funny and it was self-aware. It was funny and self-aware, exactly. And I find the self-awareness aspect of himself as a character to be less and less part of a part of him now. Yeah. No, so I mean, I think it's two things. One is I think the cruelty appeals to some people and it fits in with the message of basically they've been taking advantage of you and I'm not going to let them take advantage of you anymore. It's about the, the he demonstrates strength through cruelty. Um, which I think is ridiculous, but it, it, it appeals to some number of people. But then the other thing to remember is Donald Trump is not popular. And so I think most people do have the reaction to this that, that you have to it. Um, so if you're, if you're sort of asking, am I taking crazy pills? It's no. I mean, most people agree with you. Yeah, it's just it's it's a higher percentage don't than seemed than I would have expected three years ago. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone felt that way three years ago because no one really no one from me to Steve Bannon thought he was actually going to win. So, you know, it's not like yeah. anyone thought this. Josh Barrow is a senior editor at Business Insider, a contributor to MSNBC, and the host of KCRW's Left, Right, and Center podcast, which you can find alongside this one wherever you get your podcasts. Josh, thank you so much for coming on the program. Absolutely. Thanks, Isaac. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Thanks for the additional help from Daniel Schrader at Slate in Brooklyn. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Are you looking for more great shows right here at Slate? Do you love sports but hate the incessant blather of sports talk radio and the pointless, never-ending arguments of sports TV debate shows? I know I do. I was complaining about them this morning to my father. If you do, you should check out Hang Up and Listen, a weekly conversation about our favorite games, the athletes who play them, and what sports can teach us about society. Hosts Josh Levin and Stefan Fatsis recently interviewed Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, the NBA player who protested the national anthem decades before Colin Kaepernick. Download and subscribe with your podcast app of choice to get a new episode every Monday of Hang Up and Listen.